Well, it is good to be with you again this morning, and I would invite you, if you have brought your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you have, if you would take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. We are now moving forward into a new chapter, and you're looking at it going, wow, we're in Mark 6. We are just going so fast through this gospel, and we are, we are taking it kind of slow, but we're trying to understand all that Mark has written to us. And so this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the first six verses of Mark's gospel today as we continue our study through this book. Uh, while you're making your way there, I thought I would share a little bit of the excitement and some of the change that has taken place in our family's life really in the last couple of months. Um, a couple of months ago, I woke up and I had a 15-year-old daughter. And, um, you know, with a 15-year-old daughter, you know what comes next, right? You have to make the trip to the DMV and to get your learner's permit. And so Presley has, uh, has gotten her learner's permit, and Caroline and I were having the joy of, 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 of teaching her how to drive and, and, and maybe a little fear to go along with that. But I, I, let me just say, Presley's doing a wonderful job. She really, really is. She's right there. And so I told her this morning, I said, I'm not going to embarrass you because she's given me no reason to do that. She has actually done an exceptional job learning how to drive. The problem has not been her. Problem, <laughs> problem has been me. Um, you know, in the process of, of, of teaching her how to do this and, and reminding her of some of the th things that you need to be aware of when you're driving and the the, the things you need to concentrate on, it's forced me to have to reevaluate a little bit of my own driving, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I, quite frankly, there's some things I, I added it up. I think I have been driving now for well over 33 years. And, and, you know, in 33 years, you can develop some habits and you can take some things for granted that, you know, when you're teaching someone else, you won't, don't want them to develop those habits and you don't want them to take those things for granted. Uh, in, in fact, I was just telling Presley the other day, while I want her to become comfortable behind the wheel and while I want her to gain some confidence in being able to drive, I don't want her to become so comfortable and so familiar with driving that she loses her sense of caution and that she, she thinks that she's got it all under control and that she just sort of throws, she just starts ignoring some of the things that are very important for her to ignore. Because I've seen that just in my teaching of her, that that may sometimes be a, a, a potential in my own life. And that got me to thinking because that's not just true of driving, is it? Actually, that can be true of just about any and all phases of our life. Um, the more familiar that we become with something, the more likely we are to think that we've got it all figured out. The more likely we are to pay less attention to the details. The more familiar, the more acquainted that we are with something or someone might cause us to look past what's right in front of us. The more likely we are to, dare I say, get bored, look for other things, look for other people to stimulate us, to cause us to, to, to grab our attention. In fact, as we're going to see in our text this morning, familiarity has the potential to produce a level of disdain and, and really scorn within us to the degree that we no longer value the very thing, or as this text reveals to us today, the very person with whom we have become so acquainted. We're also going to notice in our text today that things are going to kind of shift. We're going to, we're going to experience a little bit of a shift from what we've been experiencing all the way to this point as we've studied Mark's gospel. Up to now, Mark has focused all of his attention 
The first five chapters occur in the region of Galilee, right around the Sea of Galilee, and a great portion of it has happened right in the, the, the town of Capernaum, which was a pretty big city located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But beginning in chapter 6, we're going to see that Jesus moves, and, and he and his disciples actually trek about 25 miles southwest to a little village, a, a really a, just a, a wide spot in the road for a little city that was named Nazareth, the city where Jesus grew up. And so we're going to see that, trans, that, that change place. And, and as we do, we'll recognize that Capernaum was a much larger city than Nazareth. As a matter of fact, John MacArthur notes that this little village of Nazareth was configured on about 60 acres of rocky hillside located on a road to nowhere. In other words, you had to want to be get there to, to actually come to Nazareth. It, the city, really the village, boasted a whopping total population of about 500 residents. Not exactly what you would call a booming metropolis. MacArthur goes on to state that Nazareth was so obscure that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. The city's never mentioned in the Jewish Mishnah. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. It's never mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. And yet, this little town of Nazareth was the town that after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, this was where he grew up with his brothers and his sisters. This was, this was where he was raised by his parents. And no doubt, due to the size, Jesus knew everything about this little bitty town. He would have known where every little trail went. He knew where every house was and who lived in those houses. He knew everything. He ever knew every nook and cranny of this little, this little town. This place was familiar to Jesus. Now, because it was so familiar and because this was his hometown and because of the great success, we might say, of all that Jesus had been able to accomplish in Capernaum, and in the surrounding region of Galilee, we might expect that when Jesus came back to his hometown, that the people would have just been overjoyed to see him. They would have been looking forward to hosting a big banquet in his honor, maybe even a ticker tape parade, because after all, this was the hometown boy who had come home and had done good, and he had blessed a lot of people, and now they wanted to give a blessing to him. That's what we might expect to find. It's not what happened at all. Actually, what we find, based upon what I have titled today's sermon is just simply this. Jesus was a prophet without honor in his hometown. That being understood, let's read our text this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's hear the word of God today. The Bible says this. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what it reveals about us. Father, my prayers this morning is that we would be able to tune out all of the other distractions that many of us just can't help but be thinking about because of what awaits us when we leave this place or what's in front of us this week. And Lord, those things weigh heavy on our minds. But I pray that by your grace, you might allow us to be able to focus this morning for just a few moments on what your word is teaching us and help us to be able to then apply the truth of that word to our hearts. Father, I pray that this would be done for your glory and for your honor and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we consider this text from Mark 6 and its parallel passage, which occurs at the end of Matthew chapter 13, we read it, but I'm compelled to tell you that we simply cannot be sure that what we read here represents the very first time that Jesus had gone back to his hometown in Nazareth after he had begun his earthly ministry. In fact, Luke records a very similar incident in Luke chapter 4 in which we read that Jesus went back to Nazareth and when he went to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue there and going to the synagogue, he began to teach just like we read that he did here in Mark 6. The results that Luke described are very familiar to the ones that we read about. However, Luke describes the inhabitants of Nazareth becoming so enraged at what Jesus taught that that they run him out of town, they frog march him out of town and attempt to throw him over a cliff in order to kill him. Now, scholars are divided as to whether or not the scene that Luke describes is the same one that we just read about in Mark's gospel and it is also recorded in Matthew's gospel or, or whether what Luke records actually happened about a year or so earlier. Regardless, what we see is that the response to Jesus by those in his hometown, by those who had known him, from his childhood and watched him grow up, well, it was not a very favorable response to Jesus at all. As we just read these verses from Mark, having arrived in Nazareth, he's flanked by his disciples. Jesus goes to the synagogue and he is given the opportunity to, to preach. And, and really, that initially should give us some encouragement. It should tell us that that's a good thing. As R.T. Kendall has written in his commentary, he noted that the invitation alone for Jesus to be able to, to teach in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath reveals at first a degree of, of goodwill, or at least it, it is a recognition that Jesus is now a person of significance. And so they give him the opportunity to, to teach. Mark doesn't give us the substance of what Jesus taught that day. If this event is the same event that Luke describes, then when Jesus got there, he opened the scroll and he read from the prophet Isaiah and he read about the prophecy of the coming kingdom of God. And what he began to say was that the kingdom of God, when it's preached, that it will be preached to the poor. And the kingdom of God, in which the, it would be a kingdom in which the captives would gain their freedom. And the kingdom that was coming was going to be a kingdom in which blind eyes were opened and, and, and people could see and that the abuse would be released from their oppression. And when Jesus read that, it says that he, laid, he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were on him. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it was that event, it was that, that word that incited the crowd. It was that word that caused them to become so angry at Jesus. So if that is the event that Mark is also describing, we sort of know what's taking place. If it wasn't, if it had happened earlier, we don't really know what Jesus taught that day, but we do know 
the, the crowd responded in a similar fashion. Mark tells us that when Jesus finished teaching there in verse 2, that the people in the synagogue were astonished at him. When Luke describes it, he says they marveled at the things that he preached. In other words, they were just shocked. They were amazed. Mark goes on to tell us they were shocked and amazed for two primary reasons. Verse 2 says they were amazed at his wisdom, and then they were also amazed at his mighty works. Now, why do you think his wisdom and his mighty works would have astonished the people of his hometown? Well, these folks from Nazareth, they knew better than anyone else that Jesus had had no rabbinical training. He'd not gone effectively to seminary to learn these things. And yet here he was up in front of them preaching with such clarity, such lucidity, such authority. They couldn't get their minds around that. What? Where did this guy come from and where does this knowledge come from? Not only that, but news had trickled back to Nazareth from Capernaum and from the Galilean region of all the miracles that Jesus had performed, all the different things, the people who's, who had been healed, the times that he'd calmed the storm, delivered people of demons, all of that had come back. And they're going, where did he get the ability to do these kind of mighty works? In fact, they asked this. Where did this man get these things? They simply cannot get their minds around it, and they are filled with amazement. But here's something I think we need to recognize from this text. Being amazed by Jesus is not enough. I like what one author I read this week said. He writes that amazement is not a grace. It is no evidence that a person is a Christian that he hears a gospel preacher and is amazed at what he hears. None of the fruit of the Spirit is amazement. None of the spiritual gifts that God gives His people is the capacity to be amazed. Now listen, amazement can be a very good thing. When we truly recognize the depths of our sinfulness and our depravity, and that God would send His one and only Son to die in our place and exchange His life for ours, there's little else that we really can do except be amazed by that. But listen, friends, amazement of Jesus that is not undergirded by a true and genuine faith in Jesus. Well, as we will see in this text, if that is the case, things go south very quickly. Things went south very quickly here in Nazareth. Notice just how quickly the awe and amazement of these Nazarenes turned to resentment. Mark says in verse 3 that they were offended at Jesus. Why? What would cause these Nazarenes to become offended at Christ? Well, note this. While they could not deny the evidences of what Jesus taught and did, they couldn't deny the authority and the clarity with which he taught. They couldn't deny the miracles that had taken place. What they could deny, however, was the power that allowed him to be able to do that. As William Lane has written, in spite of what they heard and saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in their village. They asked simply, is this not the carpenter? That's an interesting word in Greek. It's the word tekton. It's the, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It describes someone who works with their hands, either with wood or with stone. 
Likely Jesus was the one who was building things out of wood. He may have, he may have built a, a, constructed a lot of the wheels that were used on the carts. He may have been the one who were putting the, the, the window frames in. Jesus was the one who worked with his hands in and around that village. And they say, is he not the carpenter, the tecton? Is not his mother Mary? Is he not the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? In other words, to the people of Nazareth, Jesus was just an ordinary common laborer. There was nothing special about him. Not only that, but the fact that they referred to him as being the son of Mary, well, really, that was a backhanded slap. You see, what was customary was to refer to a man as being the son of a father, whoever his father would have been. Normally, you would think that he would have been referred to as the son of, of Joseph. What some would say is, that, well, that means that Joseph was dead by this time. Even so... Even though Joseph may have died by this point, it was still common to refer to them as the son of their father. By referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, this really is a dig that they're bringing at Jesus. You see, by this point, there was rumors that had circulated all of Jesus' life that he was an illegitimate child. In fact, those rumors would have no doubt been known by those folks in Nazareth. In other words, what they're saying is, look, Jesus, we know about the cloud that surrounded your birth. We know that your mother wasn't married to Joseph. We don't really know who your father actually is. And so at the heart of these rhetorical questions by these people that Jesus grew up around, the argument simply was this. Regardless how authoritative his teaching was, regardless how miraculous his miracles were, in their eyes, Jesus was nothing more than a common laborer who had been conceived out of wedlock. Therefore, just as they, they wonder, who does he think he is? to come here and to talk about the kingdom of God being fulfilled, and who is he to infer that he is possessed by the anointing of God? You see, despite the evidence that was incontrovertible in front of them, despite all of that, their amazement turns into offense. And that word offense is an interesting word in the Greek too. It's the word skandalizo. It's the word from which we get our English word scandal and scandalize and scandalous. And, and it really has a broad range, but it, it really, the word scandalizo means to trip over, to stumble over something that's in the floor. It also means to reject something and to put it out of hand. Both things happen here. The people of his hometown trip over Jesus. They can't believe that that's who he's supposed to be is this Messiah. They trip over him. They stumble over him. And because they can't get their hands around him being who he claims to be, they reject him and they push him aside. They were offended at him and they refused to believe in him. Friends, unfortunately, this is what happens all too often when people are confronted with the person and the work of Jesus. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 9, Verses 32 and 33, he says that just like these folks in Nazareth, people stumble at the stumbling stone, as Paul writes. And then he says this, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Later, Jesus picks up on that exact same scripture and applies it to himself in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. And he says this, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. 
I like how Greg Allen has put it. He says it's the same today. He says Jesus is not what people expect him to be. And they either must be changed by him or they will take offense at him. They either fall on him or he falls on them. So that describes the situation here in Nazareth. That is what Jesus encountered when he went back to his hometown. It wasn't a ticker tape parade. It wasn't a banquet. Instead, what we see is the first thing that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The first point that I want you to note is the situation in Nazareth was simply this. Amazement apart from faith generates into offense. Amazement with Jesus apart from faith in Jesus will inevitably degenerate into an offense at Jesus. Now, having been met with such resentment and contempt, Jesus responds by saying that what was something that would have been a common phrase, something that would have been normal for people to have heard in different places. Jesus says it this way. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, I know of very few preachers and pastors that would not give a hearty amen to that. I know of very few who have, who, have, who have ever stood behind a pulpit and preached and had family sitting right in their congregation as I do this morning, both sides. I've got my in-laws and my mom and dad sitting in here this morning. I know of very few that would not feel a little sense of the, the angst that comes from preaching in front of family and, and in front of people that you've known so well. I, I think I told you at my 25-year class reunion, a friend of mine came up to me looked me in the eye and said, I could not have been more shocked. <laughs> you know, when a conversation starts that way, it doesn't end well. I could not have been more shocked to have learned that you made a preacher. I think actually what she said, of all the things that I could have imagined you doing, being a pastor of a church was the last. You know, what she said stung. She had every right to say it. She knew me. She'd seen me. She'd watched me. She had seen me when I wasn't living my life for the Lord. She had watched as I had lived a life that was, that was not bringing honor and glory to the Lord. She had every right to say what she did. No one ever had the right to say that about Jesus, though. Think about it. From the very first breath that the man ever took, he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. He never did anything wrong. In all the years of his carpentry and labor with his hands, he had never once cheated a customer. He had never overcharged or underdelivered. He had never done anything that would have remotely smacked of being anything untoward. He had always been up and above board, honest, dealing with people, defending the poor, encouraging the righteous. No matter what he had done, he had always handled everything in his life with the highest integrity and care. But even though that was how Jesus had lived in front of all of those people in his hometown, he was still rejected. In fact, what that tells us, to quote Greg Allen once more, is this. Jesus can be can become the least appreciated in the place where he is the best known if unbelief abides in the heart. 
Jesus can become the least appreciated in the place where he is best known if unbelief abides in the heart. Consider this. Those who had had the most exposure to Jesus, specifically those in, that, those in Nazareth, those to whom he was related, those to whom, with whom he had lived under the same roof, those were the very ones who at this point in time were refusing to believe on him as the Messiah sent by God to inaugurate his kingdom. And what that leads us in is from the situation that was occurring in Nazareth to the warning that Jesus actually gives us in this, in this statement that he makes. And note, what I want you to do is notice the second point on your outline. The warning that we need to take from this is this. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We understand that phrase. We talked about it earlier as it pertains to driving and other things in our lives. Becoming so acquainted and so familiar with something or someone often causes us to devalue that person or that thing. And we can certainly see that that happened with Jesus here in Nazareth. The folks in Jesus' hometown had known Jesus for the better part of three decades. And yet their familiarity with him led to their contempt of him. Friends, I want you to know you and I face the same danger as it pertains to Jesus today. I like what Kent Hughes has written. He says that while there is no danger to us of a physical familiarity with Christ that obscures his divinity and authority over us, there is a danger of familiarity dulling us to the deep spiritual demands of our faith. What does he mean? Well, simply put, we can become so accustomed to hearing about Jesus and the gospel. We can come here week after week after week after week after week. And we can open our Bibles and we can read them and we can hear the word proclaimed to us week after week after week after week after week. And we can sing the songs of faith that really can stir our hearts momentarily, but they'll become so familiar to us that we're rolling the words off of our tongues and we're not even thinking about what we're singing. We can become so familiar with words like incarnation and redemption and substitutionary atonement and, and things like the resurrection. We can become so familiar with the concept of the cross and of the empty tomb that suddenly we become inoculated to the deep meanings that are held by those very terms and those very pictures in our minds. The danger is that we can become so comfortable, so acquainted, so familiar that instead of being drawn to our knees in humble adoration of the one who came and gave his life in our place for our sins, that instead we yawn. We become dull to all of it. It loses its attraction. I read a book a little portion of a book this week about the reminiscences of a preachers and people in the Welsh hills of Wales. There was a Methodist minister who was preaching there. His name was Benjamin Thomas. He was addressing his congregation. He, he told the story of a dog that was owned by a certain blacksmith in the town. He said the dog used to spend most of his time in the blacksmith's shop, so much so that the dog got used to the blacksmith's fire. Now, he says other dogs in the, in the town would come and visit the same blacksmith shop, but as soon as the fire got stoked and the spark started flying, those dogs would run away, but not the blacksmith's dog. He'd gotten used to the fire, so much so that he just slept right amidst all of the flames and all the sparks. 
In fact, the dog enjoyed sleeping in the blacksmith's shop so much that he rarely went home. He just slept there night after night after night. One night, however, the shop caught fire. Sadly, the dog lay there asleep until it was too late. And he lost his life in the blaze. In telling this story, Reverend Thomas looked across the faces of all of those in his congregation and he asked this, how many of you hearers have gotten too familiar with the warnings of the gospel? Many others have taken warning, but you sleep amid the sparks. Brothers and sisters, we must be warned that familiarity often breeds contempt. It can dull us we can become so inoculated that the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the gospel of our Savior loses its luster in our lives. In light of the example that we have just seen from Jesus' hometown people in Nazareth, you and I must guard against yawning in the face of God's grace. And even worse, we must guard against taking offense to it. So we've learned the situation, we've seen the warning, now let's look at the danger. The third point that I want you to see on your outline this morning is this. The danger is simply this, unbelief results in the loss of God's blessing. Unbelief results in the loss of God's blessing. Listen what Mark writes for us once more in verses 5 and 6. He says, Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Notice that the Nazarene's unbelief prevented Jesus from doing the same kind of miracles in, their, in his hometown that he had done in Capernaum and in the, sea of, in the region of Galilee. Yes, he did lay his hands on and heal a few people, but by and large, his power, rather than being released and unleashed among his people of that village, they remained concealed and contained. And the question is why? Was it, as some faith healers might tell you, that these people just didn't have enough faith and because they didn't have enough faith, God was therefore rendered powerless to heal them? Is that the case? I think that's a misinterpretation of what Mark writes here. Honestly, I don't believe that Mark intended to, conv to convey that at all. I actually like what Kit Hughes has written. He says that Jesus could not do miracles because he would not. He goes on to say this, omnipotence is not omnipotence if it's bound by anything other than its own will. In other words, the folks of Nazareth didn't hold the upper hand on Jesus. Rather, their unbelief and their hardness of heart made it to where Jesus was not compelled to show his power. And really, this is exactly how Matthew describes it. In Matthew 13, verse 58, Matthew says, Jesus did not do many miracles, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't do it because he wouldn't do it. Here's what is certain. Unbelief, we do know this, hinders and effectively freezes the exercise and display of God's power. As we noted, unbelief results in the loss of God's blessing. It did here. They, went, they had just as many sick people, just as many needs as any of the rest of the areas, but Jesus did not do them. Why? Because they were hardened toward him, contemptuous toward him. What a tragedy. Something else that I want you to notice. This passage says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. That word literally means to be astonished. Here's a question for you. What makes Jesus marvel? 
There's only one other time in Scripture that we actually hear of Jesus marveling at anything. It happens in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion soldier comes to Jesus, says, I've got a sick servant. I would love for you to heal him. Jesus says, I'll go to your house. The servant says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man who's under authority and a man who has authority. And I can tell my people to go and they go and I can tell them to come and they come and I can tell my servant to do this and he does it. And Jesus, Matthew says in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 10, marveled at the great faith of this centurion soldier and says, I have not encountered such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus marveled because here was, a, here was a Gentile. Here was one to whom the mysteries of the Old Testament had not been given. Here was the one who was not privy to all of the prophecies and all of the law that pointed to the coming Messiah. And yet he believed in spite of what he did not have. Here in his own hometown, Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the very ones to whom the scriptures had been given and among whom he had lived for three decades. Jesus marveled. Those who had known him best took offense to him, refused to believe in him, shunned him. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus left. And here's the thing. The saddest part about that is, is we never get another account of Jesus ever going back to Nazareth again. Friend, that's a real danger. It's a real danger that not only happened in Nazareth, but it's a real danger that everyone who refuses to place their trust in the Lord Jesus faces. Everyone who stares in the face of the Lord's offer of grace and mercy yet refuses to receive it faces this exact same danger. You see, the Lord's offer of salvation is extended to all who will humble themselves before Him and receive it. And one humbles himself before the Lord by admitting that he's first a sinner, by recognizing and accepting his hopeless and helpless state apart from Christ. It means that the only way that one can ever be made right with God is through what Jesus Christ has done in his place, through his sacrificial death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. Humility means coming to Christ and acknowledging our great need of his forgiveness. Without it, without humble faith in Jesus, friend, you will remain hopelessly and helplessly lost. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But the Bible also says all who will by faith come to him, he will in no wise cast out. The Bible also says this, his spirit will not always strive with man. As we've encountered in this passage with Jesus and those in his hometown of Nazareth, unbelief removes the hope and help that Christ offers. So as we consider this entire section then, that compels me to state for you what I believe that we have learned from it in my sermon in a sentence this morning. Taking it all into consideration, distilling it down, this is what I believe this passage teaches us. And my sermon in a sentence is this. To be amazed by and familiar with Jesus, yet remain unchanged and unmoved to come to him in humble faith, will result in the loss of his grace, mercy, and salvation. What an utterly abysmal thought. To have been so close, and yet to have remained so far from the only source of salvation. 
I want to close this morning by offering you one more thought to ponder today as you leave. Maybe something that you can roll around in your head and think about and chew on this week. We've already discussed how easily familiarity and our over-acquaintance with certain things can breed contempt within us. But I want you to consider this thought. Remember, this was Jesus' hometown. Jesus knew everything about it. He not only knew everything about his hometown, he knew everybody who lived in that hometown. He not only knew their names, because he was God in the very flesh, he knew the sin of their hearts. He knew everything. But rather than that breeding contempt within him, and repelling him from them, it actually compelled him to come to them to deliver the gospel to them. Friend, I want you to know you and I sit in the very same boat. There is not one thing that any of us in this room can ever hide from the penetrating stare of Jesus. He knows every single one of us. He knows our sin. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything we've done in the past. He knows everything about us. And when we think about that, we may shudder and wonder, how could he ever love me? But you see, rather than being repelled by our sin, rather than it creating contempt in him, his familiarity in us actually issued forth in his love for us. Because you see, the Bible tells us that God sent his one and only son that he might die in our place. And that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. This is how I will leave it this morning. Don't take that love for granted. Don't, don't yawn in the face of his offer of grace. Let it not be said of you that Jesus marveled at your unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.